John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 692.jb1117, certificate number 38756, Korean age. <laughs> 생일 축하합니다. Truly, we're living in the Korean age. I say that all the time. Have all, you noticed? Well, yeah, all pop music is from Korea now. All good pop music. It's not just pop music. Like, somehow they also got movies, prestige TV, melodrama TV, food, fashion, and video games. The food. Oh, I watched the one where the people in jumpsuits killed each other. That's what it's called. The Korean characters, <laughs> the, the Hangul says, the one where people in jumpsuits kill each other. And in England and in the U.S., they're like, nobody will watch that. We have to call it Squid Game. I uh, And I'm not sure why they called it Squid Game, but I, I watched it. It, it explain, it's like the first scene of the first episode. Oh, it's a squid? Kids are playing a little ga- a oh. playground game that looks like a four-square game sure. that looks like a squid. I remember now. And that comes up later in the show, right? Call back. But, uh, but I was watching it here with the, with the family, not the younger members, but the older members. You're not corrupting the youth. <laughs> and uh, it was too violent for them, so they bailed. Uh, toward the end, I mean, we watched... I mean, at the end of the first episode, just like 150 people just die with bloody gunshots. Yeah. We watched nine episodes, and that was the point that they punched <laughs> out. And <clears throat> I don't actually care about anything enough to, like, persevere, so I never watched the end either. And it was, you know, it was starting to get all... There was all kinds of plot happening, but I, I just... It fell out of my mind like so many other things. The hyperviolence is something it has in common with a lot of the other 21st century kind of Korean neo-noir movies. Right. Real real big stylized um, violence and even gore and even, I don't know, like revenge porn horror thriller stuff. Is that um, true of... Of Koreans? Korean? No. Yeah, they're always, they're <laughs> always just luring people to an island and shooting them up. They can't get enough of it. <laughs> I mean, is it, uh, it, it, does it have an antecedent? Is it, is it true in Korean culture pre, pre, um, post-war? That's what's interesting about living in the age of Hallyu or what Koreans call the Korean wave, you know, their kind of outreach of cultural power is that it's not true. Uh, in general, pre-modern, you know, pre-contact Korean culture is jolly and cheery. Huh. It's like a, 
you know, it's animals and tigers and rabbits living together in the woods. The folk songs are kind of, you know, maybe they're a little bit mournful or bittersweet, but, um, but nothing like the complex mix of genres that goes into a lot of Korean art today. And, uh, and it's because there was a sea change. Korea was a hermit kingdom until 1905. I mean, today we call North Korea the hermit kingdom. But if you would ask somebody a hundred years ago, what's the hermit kingdom? Like the, the Chosun leaders of Korea were intentionally the, the Japan play, basically. Yeah, right. We got this, we got this foreign influence creeping. It's obvious that this is a paradigm shift. We need to maintain our trade and our economy. And what we're going to do is we're going to close the borders. That's what I've done here at my house in Normandy <laughs> Park. You might call it a hermit kingdom. Yeah, it is a hermit kingdom. Yeah. Uh, you, you're worried about cultural influences. Like, I don't want like, like the 10th episode of Squid Game. <laughs> I don't want any of it getting in. When somebody rings my doorbell, I look at my little security camera and nine times out of nine, I go, hmm. Has K-pop gotten into your family culture? Do you have a Do you have a, a kid who's into K-pop? No, because there's no access. Uh, there's no portal that's open where K-pop can get in. Oh, she doesn't have a phone yet. Right, she doesn't have a phone yet, and her and she goes to Montessori school. So the kids there are are way behind in terms of adopting contemporary culture. <laughs> how fa- how far back does Montessori leave you? Like, are they what are they really into right now? I mean, the, they just got into Cherry Pop and Daddies and that that nineties <laughs> lounge revival. In my kids' estimation, um, half of the class is uh, into Minecraft, and that's all they care about, and that feels like two thousand. Yeah, 12. when Roblox hits that school, look out. <laughs> and then she said the other day, she was like, I want to watch some memes. Can you show me some memes? And I was like, memes? And she was like, yeah, show me some memes. And so I was like, I can has cheeseburger. And she was like, what is this? And I was like, it's a meme. I was like, you had to start it from the beginning. Yeah, I was like, you know, here's, you know, here's some memes. And um, like, here's the. It's, that's like what you would show an alien who came to Earth and said, yeah. we want to see your memes. <laughs> like, I don't Come know. Here. And what she was talking about was TikTok. And, um, she wants to see TikTok dances. Yeah, and kids are what, – what she's encountering is that thing that, that – there was always that one hippie kid in school that didn't have a TV and didn't watch Happy Days. And so they'd come to school and everybody would go, hey, sit on it, Potsy. And the one kid is like, what is that? What does that mean? That's a, that's a reference for a very small segment of our audience. Hey, sit on it, Potsy. But, but kids are starting to say like, you know, chili whack. And my kid doesn't know what that means. And then they're like, what? It's a meme. Plus it's much harder because it's literally a new thing every two days or, right. or every 12 hours. So she was, she came to me as her, her authorized media representative and wanted me to show her memes. And I had no, I didn't even know how to find them. Like I'm not on TikTok. And if I were on TikTok, I wouldn't know how to find Chili Whack. This is our this is our first show of the new year, I believe, which is kind of oh. kind of why I chose a hey Happy New a Year January everyone. first related uh, topic. But it, spoilers: Did your daughter get a phone for Christmas? Nope. Oh, okay. She has an iPod, which is I think a discontinued technology. I think so too. Um, but it does let her watch Adventure Time because it has video <laughs> capacity. And she's been watching Monty Python on it, and then it has music. But no, we got a landline here. Yeah. And I call it every day from my house, and she picks it up. Do you think it'll stop working if you don't call every day? Well, no. I just want to give her the the fun experience, because it's hers. Nobody else calls it. 
So I call it and I let it ring because I know she's running from whatever side of the house. And she's been practicing different ways to answer it, like Roderick residence <laughs> or, you know, like, hello, or, you know, like the way you answer your phone. This is Ken. Congrats on bringing her into the 1890s. I know. I know. I, I If it if it was just my decision, I think I might have gotten her phone, but her mother is like, no phones. Because she's afraid, you know, she's afraid of all the terrible things that creep in. Well, I, I mean, you're not wrong. Even if your kids don't get, um, you know, menaced by stalkers and pervs, there's still the fact that my kids used to love to read books. Yeah. I went to the library religiously every week, and then they got phones. A, a couple of our, our mutual friends that have kids just a couple of years older than mine talk about how they go on road trips now and their kids in the backseat taking selfies and sending them to their friends on some app that if you don't, I guess it's Snapchat that if that it's, it's made to keep your kid, not just zoomed in on the app, but to feel like real social pressure to be there all the time. Yeah. And that's healthy. Yeah. And my friends are just lamenting it like, Oh my God, it's, 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 it's metastasized in their life. Metastasized, I guess, is what what a futureling would yell at me to, as his I was just watching a movie last night, and somebody said anesthetized for anesthet. No, anethes- anesthetized for anesthetized, and they just left it in the movie, and I was like, anesthetized. Okay, so that's the that's like the maybe you were the the pronunciation consultant on this movie for for thirty years. I I have said metastasize. And I've also said metastasize as two separate you words. You didn't realize they were the same word. Well, just depending on, you know, like where I was. <laughs> I thought metafiction and metafiction were two things. No, you didn't. No, I did not. That's true. Um, well, I mean, the, the adoption of digital technologies by young people is a huge part of the story of, of Hollywood, the Korean expanse of uh, cultural influence worldwide. And just to kind of run down, just to convince people who are not aware Perhaps they are not from our time period of just right. how uh, Maybe they had quick parents. and how remarkably and how unusually this takeover of world culture was. Um, you know, since 2012, size single Gangnam Style has had 4 billion views. Gangnam Style. Yeah, or, or Gangnam Style. Opa, Opa Gangnam yeah. Style. You keep, saying Gangnam. Ga- you keep saying Gangnam Style like you're correcting my Korean. But it's Gangnam Style. Yeah, it's Gangnam. But doesn't he say Gangnam Style? I don't think so. Isn't that what all of uh, our... Uh, that sounds like what a BBC announcer telling you about it would say. Gangnam style. Uh, and of course, you know, the the subsequent explosion of fashion forward, teen beloved K-pop groups, um, you know, cute non-threatening boys and... Um, they are cute. And, and uh, girl groups. Um, BTS was the top selling band in the world last year. More than Taylor Swift, more than anybody. It's insane because we always called Built to Spill BTS. And the first <laughs> probably 600 <laughs> references to BTS I read as Built to Spill you're just like, sold it. Which BTS members uh, makeup look do you like better? And you're like, yeah. wow, I have thoughts on this. BTS just sold a million tickets in Indonesia. And I'm like, did they really? <laughs> Parasite won Best Picture. Um, so now it's not just these stylized neo noirs. Now it's. Art films of all kinds. Now, Parasite is one where I started to watch it. I got halfway through it, and I punched out. And I'm I'm not sure why. I think it was too easy to watch. It was something I was watching on my computer instead of having paid to see. 
and I got up to get a sandwich, and then I never went back. There's so, a th- there's a thing where if you didn't pay to see it, you'll be like, eh, let me just hold up a second screen and play Wordle during this important part of this movie. Yeah, so I did. So I have no idea how that ended. You might have clocked out before the twist. I did. I clocked out before the twist, and I and uh, I, I think it was making me nervous. It was making me uncomfortable enough that that when I looked over at my computer sitting open. I was like, mm, just because just because the protagonists were Asian, you were like, yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I was uncomfortable because it just seemed it's, like we were headed to it's we a were headed to a bad place. Yeah, you don't want to see bad things happen to upper middle class people in nice houses. That's right. I identified <laughs> with the rich people. Um, you know, co- Korean dramas first caught on in the West, kind of for their melodramatic uh, and uh, maybe kind of uh, what anachronistic qualities you mean like shoot 'em ups or what 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 do you mean no, dramas no these were like um these were soaps basically oh you know this would this would be like kind of jane austen type light entertainment for moms and aunts but set in a korean village when did those catch on in the did west you, was i not where was i you were not notified i guess not was that a thing that was on daytime television? Or? It's definitely a kind of thing that you could miss if you were not hooked into youth culture. Just as today, if if you asked a a fifty five year old who's the biggest band in the world, maybe they could not name a K pop band. Rolling Stones. <laughs> yeah, they, I believe uh, I'm going to say the Rolling Stones. Guns and Roses. <laughs> so now, is this an episode that you're doing? Is this one of your pandering to Generation Z because we never do any Gen Z episodes? Oh, I episode. Guess, I guess it could be. Okay. I mean, here's the thing: Gen Z is going to be disappointed because I'm not going to get into the ins and outs of BTS. Yeah, to anyone getting back together or you know who the cutest member of Seventeen is. I don't. Let me tell you, and let me be upfront about why. It's because I don't care. <laughs> We got we got an angry note about our Twilight show. That, oh, um, we got a lot of angry. That we notes. should just stay away from people. Well, I don't know if we did. I only saw this one email. But oh, it was, maybe it's just letters to me. <laughs> yeah, this is your house, dear sir. <laughs> this was somebody who was like, uh, if you're if this is what representation is, I would rather not have middle aged white men uh, what, talking about my fandoms. What were we representing? It's not clear. <laughs> it's only white people in that show, right? Or on, the, the protagonists are all yes, only. and the. And I was asking my kids, I was like, hey, is Twilight queer culture? Is this what we got wrong? And they were like, yeah, not really. I mean, I guess. It's pretty straight. For some people, but the sexual politics are so regressive that. So anyway. A- after we did that episode, my kid came to me and said, I want to watch Twilight. And I said, I just did a whole thing with Ken on it. I'll watch it with you. And we watched it. <gasps> you now have Twilight takes. I have watched this episode, Twilight. This Korean show just got <laughs> half an hour longer. <laughs> I have uh, hot takes on Twilight, namely that it is terrible. <laughs> See, this is the kind of thing oh, right. that well, this I'm not person did not like. Oh, right. The, oh, because I'm yucking their yum. Yes. Why, oh. even do, why even do a show if you're just going to say this is bad art? And, and why is it popular? It's funny because I, I think that was the subtext of much of the Twilight shows. This is not great art. Let's explain the phenomenon. I've been making uh, anti-Mrs. Doubtfire comments on, uh, on oh, Roderick wow. on the Line, and I got a couple of strongly worded emails about that. From That's the, my favorite movie. From the Doubtheads? Yeah. And I was like, wow. But you know what? We we punched out of that before the end. So we didn't get the twist. Have you ever seen the end of a movie? <laughs> you, wait, you didn't know it was Robin Williams the whole time? No, we knew that. This nice lady is taking care of his kids. What, I, did, what I didn't understand was Pierce Brosnan was set up as the villain through the whole movie, except he was really nice to everybody, and he seemed like a really nice guy. And I was like, how are they going to make him the bad guy, which is the which is inevitable here? And then somebody turned me on. 
spoiler alert, to the plot twist that Pierce Brosnan, future James Bond, um, future at the time, was not the bad guy. He turns out it's actually the crazy dad who dress who cross dresses to sneak into people's houses. Yeah, we punched out because I think my kid did not find Robin Williams's character at all sympathetic. She felt that he was a creep. That's probably true. Sorry, everyone. Korean food when I was growing up there. I'm not even trying segues anymore. It's fine. I don't. (laughs) It's the new year. Speaking of Mrs. Doubtfire, which is set in San Francisco, which is. In California, the beachhead of Korean food arriving on these shores. Mm-hmm. Is that better? Mm-hmm. Good. You got, your, you got your money's worth that time. Uh, Korean I, food when you were eating it, when you were living in Korea, yeah, I, I assume grew, was fairly... Uh, I grew up in Korea in the early 80s, and I would, if you had asked me, will this food ever catch on, I would have said, you mean with me? No. A bimbap? You, didn't, you never liked it? There, I, we ate Korean food all the time, and I liked plenty of Korean food, but it did not strike me as the kind of thing that American palates would one day not be able to. To get enough of, because their staple is this very pungent, pickled, fermented stuff. You know, in the West, we don't hate pickled cabbage, and we don't hate red pepper paste, but we're not like, let's all smell like this after breakfast every morning. I went to a restaurant in San Francisco uh, not very long ago where they served, uh, it was Korean food, and they served this rice dish in an ammo can. <laughs> it was like, they heated up an ammo can and threw all the bibimbap uh Ingredients in bibimbap. there. Bibimbap. 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 Yeah, you got it. That was perfect. Um, and then, you know, you stir it up and it's like the burned stuff at the bottom and all that wonderful, like, yeah. raw egg. It was great, but it was in an ammo can. I don't think that's a Korean war callback. I think that might, I think that's, there's something authentic about serving food in ammo cans. If I, unless I've missed something. But Korean food has kind of taken over the world and they did it by fusion. Awesome. You know, like... What if we, you know, what if we started frying chicken this way, you know, and a lot of it was borrowing of Western taste and a lot of it was a Korean diaspora where their people and their chefs went elsewhere. But yeah, in the 1980s, when I was experiencing Korean culture, you would not have convinced me that this was possible, that 20 years or so, um, in 20 years or so that it's been more than 20 years. Not really. I mean, I mean, okay, yeah. I mean, you're, it's true that the Korean takeover of culture happened in the last decade or so. But it's been more than twenty years since you were in Korea, right? I was just thinking what the gap would be, and it's closer to twenty-five or thirty years. Yeah, you're right. Um, but it started at the beginning of the twenty-first century for reasons we'll we'll get into. Like when I lived in Korea in the early '80s, it had not yet had its economic boom. You know, so it was it was not like you were. Right. Seoul was not Tokyo. No, and and I think at the time, you know, with our ex- Hong Kong extremely Singapore. limited and prejudiced view of Asia, Korea was not thought of as a uh, tiger nation. It, it wasn't a tiger yet. They hadn't really ramped up their electronics and manufacturing sector. I mean, that was beginning by the by the time we left in the early nineties. Everybody in the U.S. was driving Hyundai's and and listening to Samsung electronics um so that was ramping up but when i first got there you know seoul had a couple skyscrapers you know a lot of stuff just looked like it did at the end of the war still it was still a military dictatorship there was like like a 15-year gap with no direct presidential election there were still monthly curfews when you like everybody had to head to their uh what air raid shelters really yeah because 
Because the North's right there. Sure. You got to be ready. You got to be ready. So once a month, the sirens would blare and everybody would have to head to their, you know, basements or their subway stations or whatever. And do you uh, remember feeling like it was a, like it was a pregnant threat that it could happen at any time? I actually, I mean, the funny thing is I was very aware of kind of general cold war pregnant threats. And so maybe this was just rounding error, but it didn't seem like this was the thing, even though people would say, you know, North Korean planes can get across, can get to Seoul in, you know, 10 minutes. Right. So I think it's just the kind of thing where you shrug and think, yeah, what can you do? Yeah, you know, yeah. it's like kind of year, year three of COVID thinking. Um, but there hadn't really been much of a Korean diaspora to the rest of the world. Um, Why would that be? Again, the isolation... Um, at the time of the Korean war, there were maybe, or even in the years right after the Korean war, there were maybe 25,000 Korean Americans living in this country, uh, that those numbers started to take off pretty quickly with, um, is it okay to say war bride? Is that, that, is that a, is that a, that's the phrase that popped into my head before you said it. Um, you know, plenty of, plenty of, uh, service members bringing home their, their spouses they met in Korea. 25,000 is not very many people. That is not enough to create a, a thriving immigrant culture or population. Um, and and there was also another pipeline of, of uh, war orphans that certain institutions, including the Korean government, kind of later came to be reliant on and kept propping up, you know, as a propping up the culture as a source for Western adoption, which is problematic in many ways. Um, but the numbers didn't really boom until, you know, cause you know, Gen X thinks of, uh, Korean Americans as a lively immigrant population, you know, you, you know, good, you know, if you're in a major city, you know, you'll see a business on every corner that's probably run by a, uh, industrious Korean American family. But that all started in 65 when LBJ, um, kind of liberalized immigration quotas and as a result, that number has boomed from 25,000 Korean Americans in the mid 20th century to like 2.6 million today. It's literally a factor of a thousand. I feel like just in my life, my adult life, Koreatown in Los Angeles went from kind of like a strip to being a, a big yeah. hub. And a destination because yeah. Koreatown now thrives on people who want the the delicious fried chicken and corn dogs and other fusion food. And they want the karaoke bars and they want the spas. And, um, but in the eighties, there was no, I mean, in the eighties, Korean American cultural representation is so minimal that they couldn't even really find Korean actors on mash. You know, if, if you watch mash, most of the Asian actors are probably Japanese American. Right. Uh, and if there is a Korean actor, like you'll see him eight times playing eight different parts. Cause there's, there's just so few. And that was maybe the largest exposure that most Americans had to the idea of Korea, the Korean Korea, culture. The Korea existed. Yeah. And it was just an accident. It was like, we want to do this. It was Altman saying, you know, I want to do this Vietnam parable, but I optioned this book set in the Korean War. This is a way to do it and get around some of the cultural, you know, the cultural and political issues. Yeah. and But you can't do a show about Korean War doctors without some Korean culture and and stuff leaking in yeah so that was parts for a few actors but you know if not for that and you know it's funny i know korean americans from that generation that actually were here at the time and that was so huge for them that mash existed really i was in la last year and i 
I want I, I hiked out to the Malibu State Park, which turned out to be where they shot Mash, and you can still see the. Oh, you can still see the. I mean, there's not a lot of set there, but I think they brought in a jeep later, and and there's a there were just a ton of Korean Americans on the hike because it's exciting for them to see where Mash was filmed. This was like the only place you could see Asian faces on TV. It would be exciting for me, you know. I, my dad and I watched it religiously together. You should go to that state park in Malibu. But, you know, and you think about these Korean-American audiences hearing their language kind of butchered by Japanese and Chinese and Southeast Asian actors and all their culture misportrayed. And they're still just like, doesn't matter. This is better than nothing. Like, this is this is on CBS like once a week. Can you believe this? There's, you know, they're talking about Korea. I do feel like I gained some, you know, or at least a baseline knowledge of Korea. Enough that when I learned new things, I, I mean, I, my whole knowledge of Korea is, is built on the, the, the Lego base of what I learned from MASH. (laughs) I do remember when we moved to Korea in 81, we opened our, um, hotel room curtains the next morning and you could kind of see the, you know, the soul is set in a, it's built on hills and it's set in a mountainous setting. So you can see these kind of, uh, rocky kind of, uh, treed hills in the distance. And my dad was like, it looks like MASH, doesn't it? And I was like, it kind of does. Uh, so Malibu, not a bad match, yeah. it turns out. Um, it's not like Vietnam movies where they shoot them in, you know, Full Metal Jacket shot in Brighton or whatever, and you can't quite get the tropical vibe. Does Sean Penn yell at Koreans when they try and walk on, walk on the beach? Probably, yeah. but that's just, that's unrelated. That's just, a, that's just. A, <laughs> he just flies there once a year. Is. <laughs> yeah, he'll do it in every country. He'll go to Rio and look for a Korean guy. Uh, in the, uh, this might've been the early eighties. There was like one, uh, maybe late seventies. There was one Korean American standup named Johnny Yoon who kind of through happenstance became a favorite of Carson's. Oh, I think he was supposed to go on the tonight show one night and somebody bigger canceled Charlton Heston or somebody canceled. And suddenly, you know, it's Johnny, he had 20 minutes, Johnny Yoon improving for 30 <laughs> minutes. And I think he sings an aria, hmm. you know, he's a Korean kid. He probably had violin lessons and he knew his classical music and, uh, not to, Nope. Not to okay. generalize, okay. but yeah, he absolutely had classical music. And after that, Carson was like, I got to get this guy on. He came on dozens of times and he had a low budget movie greenlit that you might have seen about a, a guy who gets mistaken for a great martial artist called They Call Me Bruce. Are you oh, aware of They Call Me Bruce? Well, I think aware of, yeah. yeah. Just kind of a VHS. It, it was the kind of thing where it costs nothing to make. The leading man's a kind of this Korean American comic that nobody's really heard of. And then it made $16 million or something. You know, it, was, it played forever. One of these low-budget, uh, yeah. low, late 70s, early 80s. I think Johnny Yoon's in Cannonball Run, actually. Okay, yes. Now I'm speaking your Boing. language. I know exactly who you're talking about. <laughs> but except for that, like, and all my Korean-American friends would be like, Johnny Yoon, Johnny Yoon. You know, because it was literally like, we have representation and it's one guy. Right. Um, but we now live in a very different age where it's really unprecedented. A country without any kind of that's not a geopolitical superpower has come to dominate world culture in like there are a lot of seven different areas. Korean American comedians. <sighs> I see Steven Yeun everywhere. Uh, Female comedians. Oh yeah, yeah. Margaret is Margaret. Margaret shows Korean American, right? Yeah. Am, am I going to get canceled for saying no, she is? I think she is. I think she is. Um, they. Uh... Oh come on, Wikipedia. She better not be. From Hong Kong. Yay, Korean origin. Yay, right. I was pretty sure. because I and, and I remember that, you know, when she got a sitcom, that might have been, I think that was the first Asian-American sitcom, but it was certainly 
the first Korean American sitcom. Um, it's uh, the concept. She's my is, age, exactly. Is that right? Cho, yeah. Well, I don't think she's going to be that interested in you. No offense. Well, no, but I mean, I remember when she was coming up on the scene, right? And she was like Gen X. The uh, she lived with a friend of mine. Oh, is that right? Yeah, my friend Karen. She was like tiny. They were. Um, That's got. It's a, it doesn't bear on like how cool I am. Eh, but a little bit. It doesn't hurt. A little bit. It does. Yeah. You're only two degrees of separation from Margaret Cho. The uh, concept of exercise wielding this kind of cultural influence when you're not a geopolitical power is is now an academic term, soft power. Soft power. And if you think about the 20th century, it, I can't really think of a good analog. I don't know if it really happened. Well, my hermit kingdom, I think, exercises soft power. <laughs> you're over uh, over other nearby homes and businesses. Well, no, I mean, I think you have hard power, oh, and I, I have I soft power. You know what I mean? Because I have the television airwaves, and you're, yeah, just, and and you're just yelling over your fence. You've got money, and you have name recognition. All I have is influence over you. And others. Well, that's right. In the Seattle area. Well, others. Hobnobbing at all your Christmas parties. The, the 30% of omnibus listeners that prefer me. <laughs> <laughs> it's up to 30. Congrats. Yeah, thanks. No, I'm sure it's... I'm sure it's an I'm even 50-50 sure, sure split. Twenty-seven. But if you think about the if you think about the 20th century, I mean the the things that people chase, the French fashions and the British guitar bands and the American hamburgers and right. you know these are all coming from companies that, countries that can back up their the Russian political thinking. Well, that's the thing. The Soviets didn't quite play in that arena, and I, you know, they would perhaps say it's because it's not compatible with Marxism, and perhaps in hindsight we would just say. It's just that they no one was that interested in their culture. Well, I no, mean, but they, the, but they, but they really played in the hard power, uh, on the hard power courts. But is that because soft power wouldn't work? Like, did they realize from the the, the previous century that um, nobody understood the unique sensibilities of Anton Chekhov? Well, I and I, they thought something about the Russian sulk just cannot be communicated to the to the West. I think this is the Berlin Wall problem, which is if you are. If you are making an appealing case for your way of life, you don't need to build a wall to keep people in. <laughs> but is it that they didn't try for ideological reasons, or is it that it's a hard? Is it that the Russian soul is a hard sell culturally? Boy, every actor I know, uh, every, every every broody Mister um, Darcy of the grunge scene, found Russian culture and poetry immensely appealing. We were trying to figure out if they love their children too. Right. It was an I, open question. I think it's just it's so goth. Mm. It might it might be appealing, you know, to a goth sensibility. Is it possible that if they could have just held out for 10 more years, they could have made it? They could have survived Reagan and they could have just waited for Sisters of Mercy fans to adopt I feel to adopt like, the Russian soul. I feel like before uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union, we already had Robert Smith wearing an awful lot of eyeliner. And they're loving rockets. And, and, and those kids were still putting up Union Jack flags or whatever instead yeah. of instead of Soviet flags. Yeah, at that point, Russian kids all wanted old Levi's. They did, and bootleg Michael Jackson tapes. So how did this happen? How did Korea go from, like, one stand-up comic rounding up in 1980 to basically controlling every cultural genre and medium today? So it um, wasn't just one, like, like super important pivot person, right? You, you can't point to it. I mean, really, it's not it's not Gangnam style. You Although know, that was I'm the, sure it helps. That was the first like billion seller, right? Yeah. 
But that's not where the story started. And that certainly did not convert billions of people to be like, I'm going to watch Squid Game because I liked right. Gundam style. So what was it? Um, I have a friend who wrote a book on this, actually. Uh, a friend. I, a girl I went to high school with who used to write very flowery essays in the school paper um, became a writer. And she wrote a book. I think it's called The Birth of the Korean Cool. Or maybe that's the subtitle. I'm not sure. And she sent me an early copy and wanted me to blurb it. And I was traveling and didn't get to it. To this day, I feel bad about it. So Oof. if there's people listening who would have read Yuni Hong's book about Hallyu, if I had blurbed it, please. You're blurbing it now. I'm blurbing it now. Uh, please go buy a copy. And her argument, I mean, you're, it's tempting to say, as we were talking about the Russian soul, it's tempting to say there's something about the Korean soul whose time had come, right? That's That's usually how these arguments are made. You know, biographies of the Beatles often start with the the... Irish immigration to Liverpool after the war and all of this. And, you know, there's always a sense that the world is finally ready for whatever the new thing is. When I think about Korea's relationship to Japan and how fraught it is and how that's big, how, uh, you know, um, that the rapprochement between those two nations, they were annexed by Japan in 1905 and, and, and brutalized. Yeah. And really the bad blood exists to this day. Right. And there's still a lot of prejudice in Japan against Koreans. And there's a lot of there, but there's a lot a of huge, resentment in Korea too. Yeah. A lot of resentment, but there's also a, a, a large Korean diaspora in Japan, right? Yeah. It's one of the larger destinations. And it's probably just because before Korea, Japan was the center of the, you know, that regional capital for for both trade and everything else. But I do think of the rise of Korean culture as being related somewhat to the mass acceptance of Japanese culture. It's related in two ways. I think one is uh, in the 90s, Koreans watching their cultural enemies in Japan become, you know, big players on the world stage with their, with their anime and their Pokemons and whatnot. And thinking not just like, well, we could do that too, but also like, wouldn't it be great to beat the Japanese at their own game? Yeah. But second is there's a, there is kind of an inter, Koreans often point to this internal soulful quality they have that comes from over a century of persecution. They call it the Han. It's often translated as grief or sorrow, but <laughs> really there's elements of, you know, rancor and resentment there as well, you know, that we were. We've been put upon for decades by all kinds of larger oppressors, you know, wedged here between China and Japan as we are, and then Western interlopers as well. And we've just kind of had to sit there and seethe. And this is something you see in our art. Ken, let me tell you about Squarespace. Is this an ad or are you just, um, are you just interrupting to, uh, to chat about Squarespace? The thing is, I like talking about squarespace well if this ends up being convincing enough that yeah we can use this as an ad if uh yeah i mean i i just want to tell you about it often often you'll just call me up at 2 a.m and be like i can't don't you love squarespace are you awake what are you doing right now are you on squarespace right now what are you wearing <laughs> squarespace as you know but i'm gonna repeat it just so you and i are both on the same page okay it's the all-in-one platform for building your brand and growing your business online you knew that. One thing I love about it is that it helps my business stand out with a beautiful website that helps me engage with my audience. And really, it's flexible enough that I can sell anything, whether that's products I'm selling, whether that's content I'm creating, whether I'm selling my time because I'm a um, a, a masseuse, mm -hmm. masseur, I guess. Are you a masseur? 
I mean, if I were, I would use Squarespace. Oh, okay. I was going to say, and all the time we've known each other, you have not only never given me a massage, but I can't think, except for the awkward hugs that we give each other on holidays, I can't <laughs> think of a single time when you have touched me with your hands. Uh, do you have a lot of friends that will just walk up behind you in a chair and start kneading your shoulders? <laughs> Back in the 90s, I did, but that, that's... We can move on to that level. Most of those people are gone now. So why why would Squarespace help me out if I were to get into the world of, of sensual massage? Let me tell you one of the ways, and that is through custom templates. I've got one word for you, Ken. Custom <laughs> templates. If you think about, if you think about one of the, the, the big hurdles to overcome when you are putting up a website. Uh, How to lay it out. What should it look like? That's right. As part of your side hustle. And uh, you're like, oh, this is overwhelming. I don't know even where to start. Well, Squarespace has best-in-class templates. And they keep adding more. They so, do. so all the all Squarespace sites don't look the same. There's an infinite variety. So you browse the category of your business. M for massage. And find a perfect starting place, and then customize the template to fit your needs. But how am I going to sell stuff? Are there e-commerce templates? Well, this is the thing. Squarespace has all the tools you need to get your business off the ground. And, and I mean, that suggests that you're in ballooning or... Uh, Elevators? Other, yeah, or, or, or jumping high. Or privatization of space. Parkour. Uh, but even if your business is rooted in the ground, even if it's a gardening supply business, Squarespace will help you get that business off the ground and into the stars. Now, if I'm going to actually going to be a, a professional massage giver, yeah. I'm going to need my clients to set up appointments. Surely that's something that their templates can't handle. Well, you'd be wrong if you doubted Squarespace for one minute, Ken, <sighs> because appointment scheduling is one of the wonderful things that Squarespace provides. If you're going to be a personal trainer, a masseur, if you're going to offer consulting services, massage consulting services, or if you're a general contractor. Or like somebody who builds massage beds and tables. Mm -hmm. Mm. Someone who maintains massage beds and tables. Guess what? You can also add online booking and scheduling to your Squarespace site. So they could see when I'm available and make appointments or reschedule. That's fantastic. I don't have to do any of that on the phone anymore. I feel like we have, we've described Squarespace so, um, so professionally and so exhaustively that this does qualify as an ad. Yeah, what started out as an offline conversation has become a Squarespace ad. So let's end it this way. Head to squarespace.com slash omnibus for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code omnibus to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash omnibus for a free trial. And then use offer code Omnibus to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. It's so apparent in the music video of Gangnam Style, not to keep coming back to it, that Psy is very cynical. Um, That's but, true. But I don't but see I would, it in, yeah, in BTS. Yeah, K-pop videos uh, are, I mean, it's a melange of things, but I wouldn't say, and, and they're built on the roots of, Korean traditional music to some degree, I understand, but I don't think you see a lot of geopolitical rancor or deep cultural seething there. No, or even inner doubt. I guess in the noir movies, there are kind of hairpin turns of genre where there will be slapstick comedy one second, and then the cop will just smash somebody's head, a suspect's head through a window the next, you know, because he's... He's hard. Yeah, he's hard-boiled, and he's on a hair trigger. Right. 
But again, these are tropes that you could see in a Western detective movie too. So I don't want to, so I don't know how much I believe. Uh, in Han? I believe that it exists. I don't know how well it explains Hollywood. I see. Uh, and in my, in, in Uni, Uni's book, I think she points to actually the, the things that are easier to, that are a little less hand wavy, mostly the fact that Korea actually had a national strategy to take over world popular culture from the nineties on. Is that right? An articulated strategy? Pretty much. I mean, uh, it's a, it's a society that's always valued culture. When I lived there in the eighties, you know, you would often see as a slogan or a motto or a kind of a propaganda piece that Korea was the product of 5,000 years of culture. Yeah. They were very proud of their ancient, um, and as a kid, I could not have been less interested because to me, when I heard that catchphrase, it just meant we were going to have to make kites with a hole in the middle in art class, or we were going to get taken to a museum with a lot of celadon earthenware. But or... like Japanese culture, weren't the first 3,000 years of those just Chinese culture? <laughs> right. Yeah. So, you know, Korea is very closely linked to the Confucian and Chinese culture it comes out of. So I think, but I think they would agree that that 5,000 years of culture includes a lot of Chinese influence. Um, but just that, you know, anciently there are people who does value that kind of achievement. And in anciently fact, there are people that does value that kind of achievement <laughs> there's but there's a famous story in the 90s i think and i think this is true of kim young sam the president of korea being shown numbers about how much money jurassic park made okay and it was like they just made as much as 1.5 million hyundais do you know how much money we put into making sure the west buys 1.5 million hyundais right we could have just made a dinosaur movie think about that it's entire it was our entire defense budget <laughs> and it was just one dumb dinosaur movie. Wow. And this goes, this really kind of lodges in the heads of the decision makers that, yeah. you know, okay, we're never, even if we can get our nice compact cars and, and Walkmans out there, you know, we're not going to compete with ICBMs, but we could compete with dinosaur movies, you know, why not? And so Korea starts doing some very smart cultural things at the governmental level. Um, you know, there are quotas in theaters for homegrown movies, much as Canada does. What does that um, mean? Quotas? You, you can only show a certain number of oh. of foreign movies. Right. N percent of your screens have to be showing this. N percent of your TV airwaves have to be showing local content. Canada has that with... CanCon. With bands on their popular radio. CanCon. Yeah. Is that what it's called? CanCon? It's short for Canadian content. Or is oh. it content, I think? It's just, yeah, legally it's mandated that you have to listen to um, The Tragically Hip a certain number of hours a That's day. That's exactly right. Or they throw you across the border. Um, budgets were increased for all kinds of local... Concert halls and auditoriums and cultural centers just to encourage a new generation to discover this. Lots of money for startups in the cultural space. And this has continued to this. I mean, now once it works, it becomes a snowballing effect. And now Korea basically has a cabinet level minister of Hallyu. You know, there's an there's an agency of of external cultural influence um, in South Korea, which I don't know if any other country has. And the thing is, this cannot be the decision maker because lots of countries tried this before and since and at the same time. Like, how do we make our culture catch on? You know, every, you know, I'm sure Azerbaijan is worried about this right now. And I'm sure Niger is, you know, has a bunch of people sitting in a room wondering how they can get the West interested in our culture and so forth. Um, but I'm not sure Niger does. Maybe not But Niger. maybe Azerbaijan. Uruguay does. I, I'm watching uh, out the window. We've got some ice on the ground. I'm watching uh, someone try and get a Prius up an icy slope, and they are not succeeding. Oh, no. It's sliding sideways. And you got a, you, there was no attempt to put the Prius up on the street before? 
Well, I, no. This is I, your neighbor's, right? Yeah, and I'm. I, the thing is, I watched it come down the hill <laughs> earlier, and now it's trying to get up the hill, and it's sliding sideways. That, that's not relevant, or barely relevant. I would say barely is doing a lot of work in that sentence. <laughs> trying, trying, uh, trying to really loop it back in. So much as the ice on your driveway keeps that Prius from getting out, um, you know, lots of cultural factors keep Uruguayan or Azerbaijani culture from be- Azeri culture from being internationally adopted with the same enthusiasm with which K-pop and, and Squid Game are. Well done. So how did Korea overcome these international if, roadblocks? If I had to... If I had to put my money on a theory... Get it, that Prius up the icy driveway. It would be Prius-related. It would be technology. Uh-huh. Korea famously... Do you know this about Korea, that they're like the most online nation? I didn't know. They have the fastest internet on Earth, The you know most people online, the most... Uh, highest smartphone adoption. And this was true very early. They are early adopters of tech, particularly internet age tech. And it's because they saw it coming and they planned for it. You know, in the 80s, their manufacturing center was aligned toward electronics and they saw the internet coming and thought, um, you know, maybe we're a small regional power in a geopolitical sense, but in the cyber world, size is different has social media broken their social contract like it has here social media is actually what led to the explosion of a lot of these things k-pop bands were very early in engaging with fans online and saying hey vote in this poll and um you know there's going to be online exclusives and here's a little interview with um i don't want to make up names of of k-pop band members the blonde one the blonde one (laughs) the one with the little heart um beauty mark and you know, that was just one of many different ways in which there was an attempt to colonize uh, the digital world. Right. And that seems to have, I mean, there, so that's one way in which a country can have outsized influence is if they're disproportionately online. And it Wh- seems, whereas in America, the people who are disproportionately online just ruin their lives. Yeah, right. It seems, it seems fairly benign to say, vote who your favorite member of this band is, than to say, vote whether you think the presidential election was legitimate. <laughs> Yeah, they were doing it in fun ways. Yeah. Vote whether you think I should keep uh, being the CEO of Twitter. <laughs> and it seems like, and this is just me talking out off, my, off the top of my head here, but it seems like assimilation was a big part of it. You know, as we've said that the, you know, the Korean foods that everyone loves in LA, you know, you can now find them in Seoul, but... Oh, the, know, the fusion foods have I, yeah, gone back. I couldn't buy... Yeah, they have, absolutely. But I couldn't buy gochujang fried chicken in Korea in 1985. Did you try? <laughs> you know what? I could have tried harder. In hindsight, I could have tried harder. But I was a slacker Gen X teen. There you go. And, uh, you know, I had MTV to watch. Right. More than I wanted to eat gochujang fried chicken. Um, the Korean bands are not... You know, they may have some elements of Korean music, but it's they sound much more like trap or you know a melange of trap and indie pop and middle eastern music and six other things more than they sound like anything that i would have thought of as korean music uh, 50 years ago so does korea have a special relationship with the united states or are they doing like china's doing and and uh, trying to develop global well, I think their mu- I think their music appeal, uh, the the art appeals everywhere. I think. I mean, the the reason why the special U.S. relation is just where the diaspora ended. You know, most of the, I don't know if you're still allowed to say kyopo, which when I was a kid was the term for Korean overseas nationals, and now I think is a little bit generational and old fashioned. But whatever the correct term is for, you know, the vast majority of them are in the U.S. Right. 
or maybe not the majority, but a plur- you know a huge plurality of them are in the U.S. So there's that back and forth cross pollination that happens. But I think uh, I think those K-pop bands sell huge in China. I think they're very carefully designed and in in an Archie's like way and in to have Japan. broad international appeal. And of course, huge in Japan, which is which is great. That kind of the uh, the That's ultimate the revenge, goal, yeah. right? Like you cut down all our trees and you made our women, you trafficked our women, and you did all this. You're listening to Blackpink now, bitches. Yeah. Um, and I have Korean American friends for whom this is a real victory lap. You know, they I have Korean American friends that will text me every time something good happens to a Korean movie or a Korean band or Do something. Do they text you other times too, or just it's then? It's just that we have a special group <laughs> chat just for your white culture is in decline. And I, I and I shrug and say, You got you got me. It Once is. again. It is. You're yeah. right, you're not wrong. Um but I've heard other uh, Korean diaspora folks say they kind of dislike the the potential for fetishization or tokenizing that comes with you know, the, the same way that a bunch of white people think they understand Japanese culture, or I guess before that in America, a bunch of white kids in the mall thinking they understood hip hop culture. Well, or yeah, that every Italian is a member of the mafia, right? Or every Irish person is a drunk cop. And I have friends whose kids are like, we, the only place I want to go on vacation is Korea, and it's because that's where I can hang out with, um, with Blackpink, and you know, and, every Korean is an androgynous uh, great dancer, right? Exactly. Um, and so, it all gets caught up with the image of your nation. So assimilation with the West is kind of a, a kind of a touchy and important issue when you talk about how Korea took over. Did it do it by compromising any essential values did it just do it by beating the west at its own game is there a complicated fusion going on and that finally brings us to our new year's topic today 45 minutes in but i think this will be quicker that that was all important background but this is this is kind of a this is a story that's been in the news recently but it's something i was aware of my whole life i would ask my friends as a kid how old they were and you know because that's important when you're a kid who's had a birthday yet or who's turned whatever and they would explain to me that, well, what do you, do you mean, Korean age or American age? Hmm. And I thought this was the dumbest thing I'd ever heard. Age is age, right? Age is age, as we always say. So it was, it was a very, yeah, that famous saying. <laughs> it was a very broadening moment for me to realize that even things I thought of as just simple baseline math are actually pretty culturally colored. How does age operate in your life? So if you were, if they, if, if they weren't talking to you, if it was another Korean person, they just would have answered. Yeah, they would have their said Korean age. they would have given their sol. I guess the number of sol or uh, years elapsed. But weirdly, I think age is such a preoccupation in the United States. Like you, you understand if somebody's nine years old and their friend is ten years old that that's significant to to note. You mean among kids? No, I mean among adults here. I see. It's it seems like uh in 1940 everybody that was over 18 was considered an adult. Well, cuz they all looked 45 because <laughs> they were smoking so much. Well, yeah, and and they started to work and they then, all had six kids. Yeah, then they were at work, right? So so the difference between being 40 and 45 meant nothing. Yeah, I don't th- I don't hear much about that in the 30s about like, well, of course you like that uh, Fitzgerald novel. You're in your 30s. Yeah, exactly. But now, I read Booth Tarkington. Like uh, somebody could make a supercut of all the times you and I have discussed the the incredible age gap 
that exists between us. Born in 69 versus 74. Yeah, which, which, um, 68, I'll have you know. Oh, wow. Um, Johnson administration. Congrats. Thanks. Just the last, just the last two months of the Johnson administration, but still. Do you feel like he left office because you were born? No, he had already made the decision to leave office, but I feel like I'm the first of the new generation. If you'd been a better baby, do you think he would have changed his mind and run again? I don't think I could have been a better baby. <laughs> Fine. Blame Vietnam. You know what? I was ruined by the culture. <laughs> uh, but I do think we are obsessed with it, and we talk about generations so much. And I mean, I'm, I'm guilty of it as much as anyone, um, because we're, I, we identify so much with the popular culture of the moment. I don't think popular culture changed so fast in the 1870s. It was just the discovery that you could sell more stuff if, if the vibe changed as fast as hemlines. But I really do feel like the difference between you and me comes up all the time generationally, but I don't think it, it, it can't possibly matter. That's, there is this other kind of, uh, converse thing where the older you get you know because kids are just obsessed with when they're turning seven i'm six and a half no i'm six and a half whereas i have to reconstruct my age now by subtracting from the year i was born i have no idea how old i am for i'm 48 but when i was in my 20s i remember having friends in my 30s and feeling like yeah that's right i'm a, i'm a grown-up now and so are they it's not that big of a deal yeah but i think now those people are in their 60s and i would feel more of a gulf now, when, when I should feel less of a gulf. In East Asia, for centuries, the actual uh, common way of reckoning someone's age has been very different from ours. Go and, on. And most other countries mo- moved away from, the, from this older system after contact with the West. And Korea is kind of the last man standing. Is it because the Western system was better, or is it because it was just like, meh, whatever, doesn't yeah, matter? it's probably just... Honestly, it's probably just cultural imperialism, and it's more like these records are going to be very confusing. Let's all let's all jump in. I mean, in the case of Japan, I'm sure it's let's jump into the future. Right. Other countries may have had like, uh, gunboats uh, gun in their rivers and whatnot. At a Turk saying like, "Oh, we're going to use the Roman alphabet now, even though it's completely incomprehensible to." It's okay. We'll put a lot of little squiggles under yeah. some of the consonants. It's going to be fine. Should make perfect sense. <laughs> In this traditional system, you when you are born, a baby that is born is assigned, uh, in Korea, Hansal, you're one year old. At birth. At birth. Why? Uh, interesting question. Probably the central question here. And the system is so old, it's impossible to answer. It's, a, it's hard to be zero. Well, that's an issue. Like, could this system be sold that it predates the common use of zero in math in this part of the world? Right. And therefore... You can't say a baby's zero, so the first number then is one. We'll just say the baby's one. You know, coming from a country that's we're, we're a post-zero nation. We're only two hundred odd years old. We've always had zero. We we count on it. Yeah, <laughs> lol. But we haven't always had zero. But but uh, the, the Pilgrims wrote sixteen twenty on Plymouth Rock, and they weren't like, "What's that circle at the end?" Right. We've had zero for a long time. We are, uh, we're pros at zero, basically. But there was no but if you zero. Got, if you've got 5,000 years of culture, you predate zero, baby. Right. Um, so there could be an element of that. There also could be, it's possible that it it could be cultural thought related to gestation, taking into account the time the baby was in the womb. Oh, I see. It's, you know, kind of a, a kind of a life starts at conception uh, banner, <laughs> billboard, <laughs> but on a continental scale, you know, the... 
the story of this baby did not begin when it happened to emerge into the oxygen. Um, it was uh, months ago. Yeah. The story of this baby. This, this is the story of a kid, but it's not just being born at zero. If it was that, the system would be easy enough to change. You just t- Somebody tells you their age and you subtract one and you're like, oh, I see. In my culture, we would say you are 26. But it's not just that. No, there is an additional level of complexity, which is your age changes not on your birthday, but at the new year. So if you are born in December, yeah. you are one, and if, then you immediately are two. If you were born December 31st, you could be two days old by our reckoning and two years old uh, by Korean reckoning. But where is Korean New Year? Well, that's the thing. This Traditionally, the rollover time, the, when everybody's odometer rolls over at once, would have been Lunar New Year. Um, when the calendrical system changed with Western contact, they actually switched it. They actually modernized two. We're going to use our same system, but the rollover is January 1. So, yeah, in Korea, you could be born on December 31st and be two days old to us, two years old to them. And the funny thing is they still, you know, birthdays are still important there. It's not It's not that everybody's birthday is celebrated on January 1st and there's a big nationwide birthday party on January 1st. I mean, if anything, birthdays, my experience, are are maybe more important there. You know, babies have a... There's a twenty a traditional twenty one day birthday for a three week old baby Whoa. called Seire, which is kind you of lived. A, I mean, actually, that's later. I mean, that's more like we hope you live. Like the mom, <laughs> the mom did great. Welcome, right. you know. Here's some rice cakes. Then the you lived one is actually on day one hundred on 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 Bekil. It's like you did it. You lived. Now nicer rice cakes and you know a cute little outfit for the baby. Many Korean or Korean Americans will have pictures of themselves in a very ornate traditional outfit as a baby sitting in a chair looking at the camera. You may have seen yeah, one. Yeah, and that's nine months. That's 100 days. 100 so days. So it would be like a, a three-month photo. And then birthdays are celebrated annually up until, I think this is something that's diminishing importance, but uh, but Juan Gop, the 60th birthday, was a big deal because... They threw you in a volcano. <laughs> there was a... Yeah, they took you to Cheju <laughs> and threw you in a volcano. No, there were... It was just rare to live to 60 in a oh, yeah. in an agrarian culture you know, 500 years ago. So that was the big... Another, you made it. <laughs> yeah, every birthday is you made it, I guess, in in a subsistence culture. But, but it's a very important birthday, but it was not a time when the odometer clicked over. Yeah, the odometer clicking is something... To, so it, we assume that age and birthdays are connected because it's in reinforced in so many little ways, the number of candles on the cake and so forth. And you actually realize, oh no, this is a culture where these are two different things. Yeah. There's the birth anniversary and then there's age. And why should they have to be the same? It is kind of cool that everybody, um, I mean, for legal reasons, let me see, there's a, I mean, there's also this hybrid, so they, just to jump ahead a bit, they do understand that that system is not understood in the West and is therefore considered a little antiquated. So Koreans are also aware of their mannai, their their age by foreign reckoning. Um, and then there's a third hybrid system where you are still, you're, you're not one at birth, you're zero at birth, but the rollover does still happen on January 1. And that's used for a lot of official stuff like which class year students land in, in primary and secondary education, when your military conscription kicks in. Like age, according for lots of governmental reasons, hinges on this hybrid system that still begins at age one. This may be partly because I don't eat breakfast, but I'm having a hard time doing the math. What is the largest actual age gulf that two people with the same age age in Korean 
uh, reckoning, old Korean reckoning, could be. The actual chronological difference, but they have the same number of Saul? Yeah, who is the youngest person and the oldest person that could both be 17? I don't think it's that different. You know, our, our primary schools also have to pick a bright line, and that means some kids in the class are about a year older than others. But if you were born on January 1 of one year and December 31st of the following it's, year, you, you'd add a, you'd add and subtract a thing and then plus another thing. And uh, I think it might still be, the gap might not be that much different. I think it might still just be a year. Is that right? If I'm born on December 31st of one year and you're born January 1st, a year and a day later, you we are, are we two. Are, and I'm only one, but you're, but you are only 10 days older than me, right? Because you were born on December 31st. You're one at birth. Then you turn two on New Year's. I mean, I'm you, born the next day and I'm one. You can take one at birth out of the equation because everybody has that. Right. You can ignore that. So I think it really is not any different from our standing where yeah, pe- yeah. people born effectively a day apart could still be in different grades. That happens in our system. Yeah. And people born effectively a year apart could be in the same grade. And people born two years apart, let's say I'm born on January 1st of a year. And then you're born on... No, I mean, that's the same. That's just a one-year gap. I don't think it introduces anything. But a lot of the pushback to the system has been based on the idea that you know, academic achievement or whatever varies within grades, but that's not going to be fixed. No. Um, the, uh, until I mean, every student has a personalized education <laughs> brought to you by social media. You could still have homeschooling. No, please. I mean, there was the thing in Freakonomics where it turned out that like 80% of all hockey players were born in certain months and it's because, just because they were the bigger kids in their, oh, right. in their Canadian or Minnesota I read that book. Elementary to high schools, and therefore, and I think there are some connections with academic achievement. But I mean, the thing that happens there is that everybody, you, you and your whole cohort, change age at once. If the government is using January first as its cutoff for who can go to a bar, right? Then it's no longer who in my class can go to the bar. It's none of us can, and then tomorrow everybody can. So that's kind of fun. When you think about what this gives you, starting at one and then moving up every January 1st, or every new year at least, um, really what's being counted is the number of calendar years this person has experienced. Like a, when a Korean person says, I'm 27 in Korean age and I'm 25 in your age, it might just mean I have lived, I have not yet hit my 26th anniversary of my birth, but I've been around for 27 calendar years. It's why I say I was born in the Johnson administration. Yeah, you because, have a tiny bit of Johnson legacy. Yeah, there are all these people that were born in... 1968, but they're living in a Nixon world. But I mean, you, but it hasn't you've been got inaugurated a, But yet, you've but got a tiny bit of Johnson in you. I do. Right now. Just a tiny bit, but enough. Just just the tip? Oof. The uh, The Chinese Zodiac, I think, is a big part of this. Okay. Like we, you know, think about how much of our birthday commemoration revolves around the specific date of the year. And that ties into the way our horoscopes work, right? Like, What's your horoscope? I mean, what's your sign? <laughs> I was at dinner the other night. What's your side? I was at dinner the other night, and uh, I, I, I think about astrology hardly ever, but I was at dinner the other night, and one of us was having a really hard time ordering, and the other couple, the, the husband couldn't order, and the wife was like, you're such a Gemini. <laughs> and I was like, I was suddenly panic-stricken because I'm a Gemini, oh. and I just learned about myself that I have a hard time 
Oh, ordering from a large menu. And so did you suddenly f- start to doubt your choice? I, I did. Well, actually, things started to make sense because I do have a hard time ordering. So I guess I now believe in astrology. You're like, I was going to get the nachos, but maybe the steak tartare? So I'm a Gemini, whatever that means. Okay. I'm a Virgo. Do you feel like people say, yeah, you're such a Virgo? Yeah. Well, back in the day, uh, when I was a member of a more a modern primitive culture, a lot of people were like, would actually say like, are you a Virgo? They would just guess it? Yeah, based on something I would say or do, they'd be like, uh, are you? And I'd be like, yeah. And they're like, I knew it. But then there were also people that said, oh, Virgo men and Virgo women are completely different. And Virgo men are like somehow like eye-rollingly. The worst? The worst. Of of a certain kind of thing. So you that know, track. Just like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> True again. Uh, but it goes back to religious, you know, uh, the kind of the... The Christian tradition of having a saint's day, you know, in many Christian cultures for a long time, people would have the name of the saint on their day, or they would celebrate their birthday and the saint whose name day they took. Um, You know, the liturgical calendar was based a lot on birthdays in a calendar year. And when you think about Asia, it's the opposite. Like, all of their astrological thinking revolves around not what month or what day you were born, but what year. Oh, sure. Are you, you're the dog, or you're the rooster? What are you? Tiger, I think. I'm monkey, which again, confirms. I literally have to have the, the Chinese restaurant menu in front of me to remember <laughs> the order. I, I don't know. So again, that's, a, you know, you're the, the important personality traits and the destinies that come to you by virtue of your birthday, we accord on a time of the year. Yeah. So it makes sense for them to assign people to, uh, you know, how many... You know, you want to be assigned to the Zodiac year you were born, and what's important is how many of those you've lived through or accumulated, because you're working your way through a cycle. There's there's 12 animal signs, of course, but then for each of them, there's earth, wood, metal, fire, and water. So there's this 60-year sexagenary cycle, which I think is part of the reason why Juan got to celebrate. It's not just that, you know, you, you've lived a long life. It's like you've now lived through one of each kind of Chinese year there is. I, so that's I, what's being counted in this reckoning. I found a, a a desk calendar that was also a pen holder yeah. from the Soviet Union the other day and uh and and bought it and it um the desk calendar was designed so that it uh it was on a 28 year cycle where the calendar you would you would move this back. wheel, that wheel and this wheel and it could you could continue to use it uh, throughout the 28-year cycle. And the reason I bought it was, obviously, because it was in written in the Soviet language. Was it still valid? Like, But 19, it started in 1967. That's when this was made. <laughs> and it was, and this year was, you know, I could start, I could use this uh, for the next 20, uh, 28 years, I guess. Oh, is, is 2023 a 1967? Yeah. And so, is that right? Maybe. Well, who knows? I'm, I may have all of those numbers wrong. I mean, you have the leap year screwing it up, right? But whatever it was, it, it this year, I you know, I looked it up, and this year is the first year on the desk calendar. It also has a Soviet rocket launching into space on it and several other I can't believe you didn't already icons. have six of these. I know. Well, I'd never seen it before. I didn't. And I, then, of course, I tried to explain it to my kid, and she was like, I really— Wish I had a different dad. Once again, this for is, whatever reason, this is why Russia. This is why <laughs> Russia lost the Cold War. They didn't have soft power. No, and nobody wanted their calendars. The problem is, I I don't I don't read Soviet, so I can't tell what the months are. So I have to now go annotate it. 
The problem with the Korean age reckoning, well, I mean, not the problem. I mean, it's, it's, it's internally consistent. Um, the problem with it colliding with our age reckoning. That is the problem. If, you know, it hits our dumb Kevin derived day of the week of the year age reckoning, and then something's got to give. And what happened for many years was three, these three parallel systems. You would have your Korean age, you would have your Western age, and then you would have this hybrid one that determined a lot of your um, regulatory thing. The problem is age is super important in Korean culture oh. by virtue of the relationships that get created between people. Like the honorifics you would use to to, to address someone or to refer to them um, change based on who's older in the conversation. Oh. So it's kind of the equivalent of a, um, let's have a pronoun conversation first, you know, in Korea, the equivalent is, you know, often conversations have to begin with, let's figure out which of us is older, so I know if I should call you Hyung or, or whatever, you know. And and so are there distinctions made when both people have the same age? Do they then get, uh, like... I don't know how granular it gets, but if the problem is if two people are considering their age by different systems... Oh, sure. Then the, it just complicates this, how are we talking about each other? Wait, do you mean, you know, is that... Is that Monnai or is that... They don't default to a second system, like, who's bigger? Yeah, that's what you should do. <laughs> tie, tie is broken by, and then it's like 10 things. Then it's like, whose internet is fastest? Right. Who has the best StarCraft scores? Can you grow a mustache? Gets all the way down to coin flip. Um, uh, and there was just a lot of complexities to having two systems. You know, people who, increasingly in, an inter- in a global world, these are people interfacing with the West, which means they have one age at work and one at home. Ooh. Which seems a little schizophrenic. Did did Korea have a? They probably didn't have a seven day week. Oh, that's prior a good question. To... When was the adoption of the seven day week in Asia? I don't know. Uh, someone should uh, tell us. Yeah, maybe that's another omnibus. Korea and the seven day. I was just noticing that, despite the fact that I lived, my spent my whole childhood in Korea. I think we have not talked about Korea since like five years ago. I did a show on some weird Korean emigration to. Kazakhstan or Georgia or something. We were always going to do something about Korean fan death, but we never did. That's on both of our lists. I think uh, that got too famous in the West. That's probably like more famous as a Western punchline than it is as a Korean superstition at this point, (laughs) right? What's your Korean age? Oh, let's see. Well, I would just be a year. um, It hasn't been the new year yet, and I would just be one year older, so I'd be 49. So that never came up. No, people knew I didn't have a Korean age. I was blonde, blue-eyed kid. But with all my friends, they'd have to give me two ages. And I'd, and even at the time, I was like, I don't know what that means. And they would be like, yeah, it doesn't matter. Like, there was some sense that they were, as third culture kids, kind of at home in neither system, they were also a little at sea and did not want to have to explain the intricacies of Confucian age reckoning to me. But because this show is is airing after the new year, it's now 2023, happy you birthday. are technically 50 years old. It's true. Happy birthday to all our uh, all our Korean listeners. Yeah, happy birthday. Well, actually, that has changed somewhat. Uh, there is There are late-breaking developments here. Um, and this is so some of our listeners may be aware of this Korean age reckoning just because it's been in the AP and the New York Times and the BBC in the last year or so. Um, Our listeners get all their news from Omnibus. In 2019, a, if so if, yeah, it's true. If you're living in 5,000 years, you don't know about any of this. But in 2019, a Korean parliamentary committee in the National Assembly finally decided for the first time to officially ponder, you know, return an answer to the question, should there be Korean age? Um, 
And it has big implications because everybody in Korea is going to de-age a year or two the second they pull that switch. Everybody's going to Benjamin Button and all the 50-year-olds are 49. And is all it the, a Y2K problem where stuff is built around it that will all come <laughs> crashing down? You would definitely have to grandfather in you know, all the existing laws that say you do the military at 19, it's going to be like, and as of January 1, 2020, you know, whatever it is, you'll do the military at age 18. You know, you'd have to change all the things. It, that's an interesting question, though. Um, the director, Chris Marker, once said that in the 19th century, mankind had come to terms with space. Whereas um, in the 20th century, the, the great problem was the coexistence of different systems of time. And I had never thought about it that way, but certainly I can think of cases where that is, that is true. And today the new frontier is, even though time travel has not been invented, there are questions like Y2K that really do revolve uh, around how our machines count time. Um, there's the securities trading issues of how much latency there is, you know, a uh, I think now there are systems that can give you updated stock prices within 20 nanoseconds of the exchange deciding to to change them. I'm glad that all the the quantum technology is devoted, <laughs> That's what it's going into. <laughs> devoted to making sure that securities traders making sure that somebody with a 200 nanosecond latency can't get um defrauded by somebody with a 20 second 20 nanosecond latency because that's what happens, you know, yeah, if you right. if you can if the old price is still in this city but the new price is in this city Suddenly, a computer can find ways to leverage that tiny half-second gap, and there's an arbitrage opportunity. The country of Samoa, a few years ago, decided to move to the other side of the international date line. Yeah, I remember that. Obviously, they can't move the island. Right. They just moved the line. But they, that line's already pretty squiggly. They can just add a—anybody, I guess, can add a little angle to the international date line. And they did it for cultural reasons. They were like, increasingly, we're part of the Asia-Pacific sphere— like America's in decline, China's not. We would rather not be on the same day as California. It would be easier for us to be on the same business day as Australia, New Zealand, China, etc. And so that was probably the beginning of the end for America. Was Samoa deciding we don't even want to be the same day as you, bro? And, and does that include American Samoa also uh, switched over? Or is oh there... no, I don't think so. So they're they're now a whole day apart. I think you're right. I think the nation of Samoa, the independent nation of Samoa, might be a day apart from. Uh... From Pongo Pongo. Yeah, just uh, maybe even uh, that played a major role in it. Like, no, you guys. But Korea is now on this forefront. You know, they're they're uh, they're completing this 20th century quest of, uh, you know, uh, reconciling different systems of time. So the legislature did pull the trigger on it, and and then when does it come into effect? In 2022, President Yoon Suk Yeol was uh, elected with a promise to do away with. Um, Korean age reckoning. That's so funny because uh, wh when was last time somebody was elected on an <laughs> anti-nationalism platform? Uh, would you... Um, well, it's not anti... Well, I guess it's kind of anti-nationalism. Right? I, was, I was just thinking it would be funny if uh, an American political candidate ran on the platform of, I will make you one year younger. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, it passed the National Assembly just this month. And now um, traditional ages will no longer be used in any official capacity as of next June. And you will not change birthdays on January 1st, too? I mean, you can do whatever you want. Right. But yes, 
Um, it's just now all of a sudden your birthday is going to be the day you change. To the government, your, your age will not change on January 1. Your, oh. your age will change on the anniversary of your birth. So one last gasp, I guess, for Western civilization, even as we're losing Samoa, um, we did at least get, we made all the members of BTS a year younger. I mean, I can always say that 54 is the new 34. Well, in Korea, 53 is the new 54. And that concludes Korean Age, entry 692.jb1117, certificate number 38756, in the omnibus. Futurelings, in the unlikely event that social media will still exist in your era, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram are archived at at Omnibus Project. Uh, I don't know. It, there's no place for us to have a TikTok, is there? Or a Snapchat. Those things are not for We could, but which of us would start it? I found out that H&R Block has a TikTok, and they were dunking on me with it. What? Because I got their, their question wrong on Jeopardy in 2004, and suddenly the oh, right. H&R Block TikTok is, um, is having some fun at my expense. But the thing is, you have H&R Block uh, tax, uh, uh, tax work uh, in per- perpetuity, right? Didn't they promise you that— I have H&R Block perks. And they'll just. But keep apparently, doing it. the price of that is them roasting me on Block Talk. Well, how could you have lost on Jeopardy? You are the host of it. <laughs> now I can neither win nor lose. I, I both <laughs> win and lose Jeopardy every night. I'm Schrodinger's host. Anyway, you can uh, see our increasingly declining contributions to social media at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick. Uh, you can email us at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. Uh, hang out with other Futurelings on Facebook as Futurelings. Uh, on my Patreon uh, the other day, uh, there was a thread of people saying that they were not members of the Facebook Futureling group, but they still felt connected to being Futureling. They would still describe themselves as Futurelings because they talked on patreon.com slash John Roderick. So if you're against Facebook. Shouldn't they just go to patreon.com slash Omnibus Project, though, when you think about it? Oh, hmm. <laughs> Yeah, that's an option. Yes. Uh, you can send us actual mail at P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Sounds like you're opening some packages, Ken. Oh, I'm belatedly uh, getting all our Christmas cards from Tess and Bill, and uh, but more like their cats. Oh, yeah, cats. Uh, from the Callings, from the Gettys. The, the, the we, Gettys? I don't think so. I hope they're members of our. Patreon. I don't think. Do you, I don't think the Gettys go to the Walgreen uh, photo counter to do their Christmas card, yeah, right? Perhaps not. Probably not. I'm not sure. They and, probably assign somebody to do it, and I bet they go to Walgreens. No, you get and just then you, skim the cash. Get a handmade etching from them. Maybe the Callings are actually a family that shows them on their Christmas card. But we have all three kinds represented. The uh, Callings this, have a new new baby. Looks like yes, they do. But they also included the parents. The Sullivans are the kind of family that only puts their cats on their Christmas cards. Those card. are some chonky cats. They are. It's Pippi and Buster. And the Gettys appear to be the kind of family that only put their kids oh, sure. on their Christmas cards. That's card. all you really care so about. So all the faiths have been represented. Two beautiful babies. We also got, um, for whatever reason, as you might recall, we're on the uh, mailing list of the Center for Land Use Interpretation in Venice, on Culver City. We recently 
promoted their new exhibit about uh, water towers, mm-hmm. I want to say. Mm-hmm. But this is their end of year, why aren't you donating to us sure. card, which fair that, enough. We must have gotten a few of those from the Kentucky Colonel. Think of the cash value we're providing by uh, just saying their name. Oh, I know. All the time. Oh, yeah. That's the thing. We almost, we're, we're probably their highest donor. Yeah, we're influencers. In a way. And then from, let's see, from Lily in Tennessee. Uh, oh, this is actually. Came with a package. <clears throat> this is Lily, whom I know, I believe. Uh, it's a Tennessee-themed care package that includes um, a Dollywood postcard, which has a train, and Lily points out it's there for omnibusy. And... Uh, Some of her garbage. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's both the packaging and the contents, but deconstructed. A Jeopardy clue, an actual Jeopardy clue from 2000. This marshmallow sandwich from the Chattanooga Bakery... A favorite in the South with RC Cola has been around since 1917. Can you respond correctly about this Tennessee baked good? What is a a Malamar? So close. The Malamar of Tennessee would be the moon pie. And she sent us some, oh, this must be a holiday flavor, mint chocolate moon pie minis. Did you know that moon pies, I have another card here, moon pies come in seven uh, flavors now? I didn't know that. I thought moon pies were chocolate only. I didn't really know anything about moon pies. But welcome to the 21st century, where um, even in the South, they have discovered salted caramel and pumpkin spice. Interesting. Interesting. I, mean, I, I ate ho-hos and uh, ding-dongs. I, too, am a hostess family. I don't even understand the little Debbie cinematic universe. Me either. Um, I'm at sea, but these moon pies... So, it looks like Lily sent us the packaging so we can enjoy it, but then shrink and bubble wrap the moon pies to better protect them. Keep them fresh. Yes. Oh, wait. Are there multiple flavors here? Is this like the time I tweeted at Doritos and they sent me a box with all of their different flavors? That happened to me once with um, Chex Mix. You got all the different flavors of Chex Mix? Including some that I didn't think existed, like maybe straight from the lab. Oh, wow. Lily has sent us every flavor of Moon Pie. Is that true? I see chocolate, vanilla, strawberry, banana, chocolate mint. But possibly not the fancy flavors. Maybe no pumpkin spice or um, salted caramel. Maybe they're seasonal. I'll take the chocolate and chocolate mint if you want the banana and Oh, mango. I see. Hey, if you'll, uh, if you'll take the bad flavors, uh, Ken, I'll take the good ones. I think we should cut each one in half. Oh, sure. Have you ever had cut a moon pie? Cut the baby in two. Have you ever had a moon pie? Uh... Oh, no, salted caramel and pumpkin spice are represented here. I've eaten so many terrible regional things that I think I probably have had a moon pie. I am tossing you a moon pie, so now you can try one on air. I'm going to try one of the yuppie flavors here. So we're we're not going to cut these in two. I don't see any flavor on the. Oh, it's written on it. She wrote it on it. Yeah, she has a... uh, This is chocolate. Whoops. Let's try salted caramel moon pie. So I'm not much of a marshmallow guy. Yeah, me either. But luckily, I mean, 1980s era Korea's other gift of popular culture was the choco pie from Orion. Yeah, I've seen those. And it's basically a a bigger moon pie. Okay, I'm eating the chocolate one. I like them. The um, they're can, not they're not overly marshmallowy. No, you can really taste the preservatives. <laughs> the marshmallow just adds a layer of softness, which you need. Because the wafers kind of drive. I like the frosting. This is good. I like my um, bougie salted caramel moon pies from Chattanooga. Yeah, I mean, I 
Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. Are you you're, are you anti moon pie? No, I'm not going to say anti. You know, it's situational, right? Like if you were in a Cormac McCarthy novel and somebody gave you these, you'd be like, "Thank the Lord." <laughs> but I want to get a sun pie and make an eclipse. If there if there was a box of Girl Scout cookies here and a box of moon pies, I think I'd reach for the Girl Scout. If there was a jar of Frangos, do I have to like? Do the outro through a full mouth? Have you have you finished? Oh no, thing? I have not. I would okay. just encourage people. Thank you, uh, Lily. Thank you, Lily, and thank you everyone who sent us a Christmas card. Uh, I'd like to encourage everyone to support the show by going to patreon.com slash omnibus, and um, uh, or I'm sorry, patreon.com slash omnibus project, and um, make a generous contribution, and it will help us. Uh, continue to do the show. This episode is the first after our, or it, it heralds the transition to once a week. Yeah, this is our first weekly show. Um, We're now a Thursday show, apparently. A Thursday show. So I, I think that. And we've will... shaken up the Patreon tiers a little bit in order to make sure that they scale with a new 52 show year instead of 104 <coughs> show year. But one of the, that means the dawning of a pretty cool new perks. Age of so, Aquarius. Yeah. If you are giving at a certain level, check out the new Patreon tiers and uh, and see if you would like to stretch your omnibus dollar. Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe for may never come. If the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But we, uh, we wish you many goods and moon pies. And if Providence allows, we hope to be back to you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.